Lord, we worship you. Take a moment and lift your praise to the Lord. Hallelujah, we praise you, O Lamb of God. We worship you. We praise your name, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise you, Jesus. I want to say thank you for making your way to Spring Conference. Amen. Making the, the decision to invest some of your time and, and uh, a lot of gas money to be here. We appreciate that so very much. Amen. Some years ago now, I was reflecting on my, my first time to really sit down with Bishop Osborne. I was a young evangelist, went to his church to preach for him. He sat and talked to me like I was somebody important. At, at the young age in the 80s and evangelizing and just, just a wet behind the ears preacher. And the other day I visited him, sat down and interviewed him and I felt again such, such like I, I'm, I'm somebody. I'm somebody. I will tell you that every time he walks in the room, that's the way he makes people feel. How many of you, you don't have to see your hands because I don't want your secrets being getting, given out, but how many of you have gotten messages after messages after messages from Bishop Osborne? He has been such a treasure to the apostolic movement, preached all over the country, continues to do so, and we are blessed and honored to have him here tonight, and also a member of the Indiana District of the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give the Lord a great big hand for the ministry of Bishop Osborne. Come and obey God, Bishop. Love you, man. Yeah, give that hand to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, how great he is. How great he is. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And you may be seated tonight. How happy I am to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come and spring Come to be with you this evening. I'm not going to waste your time. You can waste your money and get it back. Wasted time is irrecoverable. I don't have that much of it left to waste it. So uh, I'm going to try to be very prompt and, and to the point. I was a young boy back when the world was young. I walked home from school, like they say, uphill both ways. And uh, just grade school, though, so the hill wasn't quite as steep. On my way home, we didn't ride buses. We walked like you're probably supposed to. And uh, like you put one foot in front of another one to get where you want to go. So I walked home. It was only two or three blocks. My mother had told me, you stop by your grandmother's house. I'm going to be shopping or a grocery store or something. And She'll fix you a little lunch. Then I had to walk back to school. So on the way home from school, I, uh, I found a letter. And uh, it, was, it was beautifully written. The, the penmanship was excellent, written in cursive. And it was in the envelope. It had been opened, but it was, in the, it was folded, you know, like a little letter envelope. So I put it in my pocket like I thought it might come in handy. I had no idea what it said, but I got to my grandmother's house and... Uh, after I'd eaten, she said, what'd you do in school today? I thought, pull that letter out, showed it to her. She was an old woman, probably around 40. And uh, <laughs> the younger you are, the older old is, you know, so. I thought, she'll never know. She'll never know. She'll never know. So she opened the envelope up and looked at it, and she said, uh, did you write this? I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, uh, do you know what it says? I said, no. We're learning to write it this year. We'll learn to read it next year, you know. <laughs> I didn't know whether it was a get well card, a 
Dear John letter or a love letter. I didn't know what it was, you know. I just claimed it was all mine. You know, sometimes we pick up the Bible, the Word of God, and we pick out a verse of Scripture. We read it. We really don't know whether it's a love letter or exactly what the what that is. Because we just read one little verse of Scripture, you know. And uh, it's kind of like me picking a letter up. I really don't know who it was written to the boy wrote it or a girl wrote it or what the occasion was that demanded the two-page letter. I had no idea about any of that because well, I would have, if I could have stayed in school another year, I guess I might have learned to read what somebody else wrote. But since I didn't, or I stayed, but I never learned. I wish I had the letter. I'd like to see just what it was, you know, that I pawned it off as my, my work that day, my, my, my school work that day. It is by nature and uh, by, by, by how I've been taught and what I was exposed to most of my life was to, to, be, to tell stories, to be a storyteller. My wife is here, and I'm glad Sister Osborne's here with me tonight. And my son-in-law and my daughter are back here, my pastor and his wife now, and I'm glad that they're here tonight to this great conference. But uh, to tell stories, you know, you have to stay with your subject, which is a good, it's a good thing, you know. You can't jump everywhere and tell the story because, I mean, you can't get in the fiery furnace and cross over Jordan and then kill a giant because it's not a story. It's, it's everywhere, you know. And so telling stories demand you do certain things in a certain way. And so that's just, that's just what I am. It's supposed to describe a series of events in some, some kind of order to them, you know. And uh, goodbye stories are some of the most difficult stories there are to tell because it's a hard thing when a soldier is in the airport and I fly quite a bit and I see a soldier in uniform and he's kissing his family goodbye and he's kissing his sweetheart or his wife goodbye he's picking his kids up and hugging them hugging them and saying goodbye before he gets on that plane and flies wherever he's going you know it's just a sad it's a sad moment when you see that kiss goodbye sometimes you wonder whether you'll ever see him again or not you know it's according to where they're going where they're flying to what the occasion is it's just hard hospital goodbyes are, are are hard when you know been in the hospital with families and finally they say you know your sick baby's here and but you can't stay any longer you need to go home and it's always hard to see the mother you know reach down and, and, and kiss it on the cheek or what have you no She's saying goodbye to her sick baby, and she can't stay in the hospital any longer. It's always it's a hard thing. And you see trains leaving Ukraine, and, and uh, women and children with their noses pressed up to the glass, and their husbands and sons that cannot leave are waving goodbye and mouthing the words, I love you, I love you, knowing they may never see them again. It is the last kiss, the last wave, the last thing they're ever going to see of their babies, their children, and their young sons and daughters. This is a sad goodbye scene, but it goes that away every day of our lives, people say goodbye to someone, not knowing whether you'll ever really get to see them again. The Bible is filled with trails of goodbye stories, you know. Abraham and Sarah had to say goodbye to Ur of the Chaldees and say so long to family and friends and folks that were there, knowing they will never see them again. It's a final goodbye. It's not just, I'll see you tomorrow or next week. It was a goodbye. They were never going home again. They would never see the folks he said goodbye to again. Then having to say goodbye to Lot and his family when they were the only real friends they had along with them, you know, and they had to have that final goodbye and the dust from their old sandals boiled up behind them as they headed down to what looked like, you know, the Garden of Eden. It was that last goodbye, and I don't know how long Abraham stood there and watched them as they went out of sight or whether anybody turned around to look and give one more goodbye or not. But it was Abraham having to say goodbye. And then saying goodbye to Hagar and Ishmael must have been a hard thing, you know. You know, people put Hagar as a, she's just a type and shadow, you know. She's just a bond woman who gave birth to a bond, man, to a bond son, you know. I get it. But she was a human being too, you know. She is a woman to begin with, you know. And he was just a little boy to begin with. That's saying goodbye. I'll never see you again. Give her a bottle of water and set her on her journey. You know, it's tough to say goodbye. I'm sure for Abraham, he probably his eyes watered up having to kiss that little boy goodbye for his last time. Never see you again, son. Hagar thought she's going to be part of the family, but she's not. She's sent away with a bottle of water, and that's all she gets for all she's been through. And she's never disobeyed one time. She's done everything that that family asked her to do, serve them, 
bowed her knee to them, cooked for them, took care of them. It was not her idea to have Ishmael. It was that she just did the best she could do because of the people that had the rule and reign over her. She was a handmaiden. And he was born of a bondwoman. But they were still human beings. And they still had feelings. They still had emotions. Saying goodbye is never easy. It's just never easy. It's always hard. You know, when Elijah said goodbye because he was going to follow Elijah, you know, he's going to say, he said, let me go tell my mother and father goodbye. He went back, kissed his mom, kissed his father goodbye, and he'd never see him again, as far as we know. One final kiss to your parents, and you never see him again. It's tough to say goodbye, especially when you think maybe, I don't know, I might not ever see him again. It's just tough to have to go through all of that, you know. Ruth saying goodbye to Orpha and her family. You know, Jacob saying goodbye to his mother. It's just goodbye trail of tears every place you look. It's just times when we're hard when people have to say goodbye. I want to lay that little bit of groundwork there for you. In the book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verses 12 through 15, I'm going to tell you a story out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 12 through 15. Then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shall swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods, comma, the gods of the people which are around you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. For a few moments this evening, I will preach to you on the gods around you. The gods around you. The gods, not that you didn't hear me, but I want to just let it echo in your head for a moment. The gods around you. What I would like, Brother Stumbo, would you come up here and pray over me and this word of God in Russian? I heard him, I heard him pray a few weeks ago in Russian. I cried like a spanked baby. Didn't know a word he said. Didn't know a word. I don't speak Russian. I don't know anything he said. But it's so it's going to do something to you tonight when you hear it. You, 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 even though you don't, you don't have to understand it, you don't need an interpreter or a translator. Just listening to it, even in another language, it's not the language, it's the spirit behind the language that touches your heart. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. I promise you're going to feel it. Well, Brother Stumbo's going to pray over this word. Bless you, Brother Stumbo. Bless you. Amen. We love мы любим брата Азбурна. Мы любим брата Азбурна. Господь, спасибо за это служитель брата Азбурна. Мы молимся за него, Господь, чтобы ваше помазание, ваше присутствие будет с ним сегодня, Господь. Помоги его, Господь, проповедовать, Господь, твое слово, Господь, чтобы это коснуться наше сердце сегодня. О, Господь, ты нам нужен в этой служении, в нашей церкви, Господь. Благослови брата Азбурна, Господь, это церковь, Господь. Помоги нас, Господь, получить от тебя, Господь, что ты хочешь в нашей жизни, Господь. Во имя Иисуса Христа, благослови Господь, помоги нас, Господь, быть свободно через Твое Слово, Господь, освободи нас, Господь, а всякие, Господь, грехи, аллилуйя, всякие неправные смыслами, Господь, во имя Иисуса Христа, слава Тебе, наш Бог, Господь, аминь. You may be seated. This book and this story begins in the book of Deuteronomy, the first chapter and the first verse. Reads like this. These are the words which Moses spake to Israel on this side of Jordan in the wilderness, 11 miles from the promised land. This book of Deuteronomy, no matter where you pick it up at, these are the words of Moses. He's getting to send a new generation over into the promised land. And all they get to take with them are his words. He doesn't give them a staff. What would that staff be worth? If you could just have that staff. He struck out over the Red Sea or he threw it down became a serpent. Because you know there's a serpent in every rod. 
What would it be worth to have a pair of sandals that he walked in? But all he left that generation, the Bible said, these are the words. The book of Deuteronomy are the words that Moses spoke to a new generation. So when you pick up the book of Deuteronomy and you start reading it, understand those are the words that were spoken by Moses 11 days before he climbed that mountain on a one-way trip. He gave it to a generation. Wish I had some silver for your inheritance. Wish I had some gold to give you. Wish I had some precious stones to give you. Well, I've got to get you through what you're going to go through is my words. You have to live on my words. You have to obey my words. You have to hide them away in your heart because the only thing that was going to save you is I'm going to give you my words. These are the words of Moses on this side of Jordan, still on the wilderness side of Jordan, just 11 days before he had make that trip up that mountain. He said, I'm going to give a new generation just my words. So all you read in the book of Deuteronomy are the words of goodbye that Moses is going to give to a new generation. I took my text from this book because it was written to a new generation that had been born in the wilderness. Other parents had wandered until they had all died. 20 years and up, had all died. The 600,000 men came out to make the trip. Women and children, probably three and a half million of them. You think you've preached a lot of funerals. Try that on for size someday. You've got to preach about three million funerals in 40 years. Talk about blisters on your hand from digging graves and what do you say next? What do you say to this one? What do you say to that one? How do you come for these kids? Where do you go with that? His whole life had been nothing but digging graves and burying people. The judgment of God had been on their parents. The word Deuteronomy means the second law. In other words, i got to say it all again. I said it to your parents. They backslid, died in the wilderness. I buried all them. i got another generation that's come out of the wilderness now, and i got to say it again to you because the Word of God don't change. You can do it or not do it, but the Word of God's not going to change. It's just a saying it again. I'm saying it to that generation right there. You said it to your parents, to your grandparents. Said it to those that have always gone the way of the grave, but the word of God stays the same. You can do it or not do it, but the word is not going to change for you. These are the words of Moses. Deuteronomy are the words of Moses, not the words of another prophet. They're not the words of a soothsayer. They're not words of a magician. They're not words of some wise, learned man. They are the words of Moses to a brand new generation. Moses is preparing to meet God on this trip up the mountain because the book ends with these, the new generation, you know, that he gave to them. And Moses climbed up that mountain and died, and God buried him evidently, and Israel mourned for him for 30 days. That's the end of Moses. It begins with his word, and it dies on a mountain where nobody had a eulogy. Nobody preached his funeral after he had preached all of their funerals. Nobody preached his, God preached his and buried him. And that's the end of Moses. This book of Deuteronomy is his story. That's why I love it. He's preparing to meet God. Moses remind the new generation of the failures of the past. If you don't want to be like your parents, you're going to carry on the long tradition of dying in the wilderness, then so be it. But I ain't going to be here to see you through. He's like a parent sending your kids off to camp. Give them that last little talk, you know. Everybody camp ain't saved. I wish they were, but they're not, you know. And some of them may get saved, some of them, but don't pick out one. Find a boyfriend or a girlfriend or somebody you're going to run around with that's at the altar every night. They sing in the choir. They behave themselves. As much as lies within them, they do. He's like a parent giving his children because you can't go to camp with them, you know. I mean, you can go, but they ain't going to want you hanging around. You're the last person they want to see at camp. They don't want you sitting with them or hugging on them or feeding them with a spoon or burping them when they get whatever. They don't, they don't want you around. You're going to take a vacation with your kids someday 
oh, we go, we're planning on taking a vacation. We're going to go out to the, we're going to see the Grand Canyon. By the time you get around to do it, the Grand Canyon is the last thing they want to see. They'd rather go to the mall with their friends. This don't wait too long. Moses is, is, understands that these young generation, the, the, he's got to warn them, give them the admonitions and the counsel and the reminders and the cautions to be aware of the dangers to the survival even in Canaan's land. Most remind a new generation of the failures and perils that doomed their fathers. You know, we preached all of your father's funerals. You understand why we did that, don't you? We you understand they did not obey the word of God. Therefore, they died. Now, if you don't want the same thing to happen to you, you had better keep the word of God. You better be obedient to the word of God or you will repeat the failures of your fathers. The price would be that God would destroy. See, God takes this serious. Some of you don't, but God takes it serious. He said, if you don't obey me, I'll wipe you off of the face of the earth. Serious stuff, you know. I'm not going to give you a headache. I'm not going to let your sinuses kind of drain, but I'll wipe you off of the face of the earth. There'll be no remembrance of you if you disobey me. So it was the counsel of Moses that they'd be obedient to God. But there was a new enemy and a new peril and a new danger that this new generation would face. That seemed to be somewhat worrisome to God, if God can worry. If he can worry, some of us have worried him to death. It was worrisome to Moses because God showed it to him. And he knew he couldn't go with them to bail them out like he did so many times, you know. Pray for them. Encourage them. Lift them up. Reprove them. Remind them. But I can't go with you this time. We're 11 days from crossing over. And I wish I could go because God took me to the mountain and he rubbed my nose in my failure and showed me all I was missing. But I saw something else that was worrisome when I looked over there into that land. Because the fathers of past generations were never faced with this. This was the new generation that had a new enemy and a new obstacle to their success in the promised land. Because God had protected the former generation from it. He protected them from the plagues of Egypt protected them for the impossibility of the Red Sea, protected them from bitter waters, protected them for hunger and thirst, protected them from stinging vipers, and protected you from wicked kings and their ungodly wives. As your heavenly Father, I have been your protector, your shelter, your covering, your refuge and your sanctuary. You're covered from the storm and your hiding place. I protected you from the gods of Egypt by putting you in Goshen, which is 5,270 miles from the center of Egypt. It was an Egyptian territory, but it was over 5,000 miles away from Egypt itself. And so I protected you from the corruption of Egypt by putting you so far away that you couldn't get back to it, nor could they go and worry you. But this is going to be different over in the land where you're going to because you're going to have neighbors when you get over in to the promised land. Israel had never had neighbors. God always put them off by themselves. Was it the wilderness or Goshen or whatever he did? He protected them from having neighbors around about them, you know. And he said, this is going to be the sorest test of any generation. I protected you from it, but this is the first time you're going to have neighbors. And they're all descendants of cursed Ham like Jebusites and Amorites and Hivites, and they're all called Canaanites. It was the son of Ham who had a curse on him. That's going to be your neighbor. You're going to live with a neighbor that's going to have a curse on them. And there'll be 24 known gods, and God would only know how many more gods, at least 24 other gods. There's going to be cities and towns and tribes and cultures all around you. And God knew the greatest test of allegiance and loyalty to God was not some foreign invasion or some people on the other side of the world. 
but it would be the people and the gods of the people who are all around them. That is the danger you're going to have. Your, your parents didn't have it. They had Israelites all around them. But you're going to a place where there will be gods and the people of those gods, and they will be around you. And that will be the sorest test that if you, can stay, if you can stay faithful to God, in the midst of God's being all around you, that will be the greatest test God's people have ever been put into. And I would not be afraid to declare tonight that this generation is set up on these front pews. These young people will have a problem that many of us older folks did not have. And that is the gods of this world are all around them. They're all around them. They're their neighbors. They go to school with them. They're on the school board. Sometimes they're the teachers. When you go to the mall, they're there. Every advertisement is there. Every billboard is there. Everything that is around them is just another God pleading for their attention, pleading for them to surrender their allegiance to this God. Moses said, I'm worried about you. I can't go with you. But you're going to have gods all around you. They will be all around your life. The greatest temptation to getting away from God will be the fact of the wooing of the gods that are around you. And so it was. It actually happened. It was a valid concern. For Judges 2, 12 said, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers and brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them. They bowed themselves, uh, bowed themselves toward them, bowed themselves to them, provoked the anger of God. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. That's what happened to that new generation. And he was worried about it to begin with whether you've got the backbone and the stomach to be able to resist the gods that are around you. Israel could not do it. They succumbed. Not a foreign god. Not some god from... These were not foreign gods. These were domestic gods. These were gods that were there before they got there. They were not alien gods, but indigenous to the country of the promised land. They were not abnormal, but they were normal to those inhabitants. That is, their neighbors that were round about them lived a what they thought a normal life with their gods. These gods were native. That is, they're involved in home and family and those around about them. These gods were not sourced from some outside culture as recent arrivals. They were not newcomers. These were gods that had been there a long time. The gods were not some kind of new god, but rather had acquired a deep allegiance and cultural roots in Canaan's families and tribes. These were time-honored gods, respected, worshipped, and cherished by the inhabitants. These gods were hand-me-down from generation to generation. Children were raised on these gods, handed them down to their children and to their children's children. These were the gods of their fathers, and these were treasured gods, and they're going to be all around you. You're the only generations had to live with gods all around you. I'll try to show you that in just a moment. Ask any kid of my generation. I was not tested and tried as this present generation is. I was not. I was not tried like they're being tried. I did not have to resist what they have to resist. I do not have to deal with when I was going to school what they're having to deal with. You older folks need to understand this is another generation and they're living with gods that are all around them. All around them. I'm going to show you how Moses is going to fix it for you in just a few minutes. But God's all around them, so don't look down your noses at them. Don't think they're worse than your generation was. Your generation was all this and all that and all the other things, you know. You had a good generation. Yeah, and you didn't have gods all around you either. I'm not saying it was a perfect generation. You did not have to deal with what this generation has to deal with. My generation, we had no television. I had no computer, had no internet, had no cell phones, but there was no muggings, there was no carjackings, no school shootings, no rape, no domestic violence, no police shootings, 
But we did know the difference between a boy and a girl. And it was not because we took a class. Somehow we just knew. I was not a genius. I didn't get good grades. But I knew the difference between a girl and a boy. Sweet Jesus. I knew it wasn't something that you could transcend. I knew that. Our teachers all wore dresses. Women teachers all wore dresses. And our men teachers all wore suits and ties. Can you even imagine that, young people? Your teachers all wearing dresses? And your, and your, and your men teachers all wearing suits and ties? I remember Mr. Zimmerman was my favorite teacher. And one time it was hot in school. Just about 30 steps from hell, and I meant that literally. When I was going there, at least. And my teacher took his coat off and hung it up. He had a white shirt on because teachers wore white shirts and neckties. Believe that or not. I need to get back over here because I got some of you kind of staggering right now. They could even ever been like that, you know. Mr. Zimmerman took his coat off. He had a pocket. His shirt ain't got no pocket. Why don't you put a pocket on a shirt? Why in the name of all that's holy and righteous would you make a shirt and put no pocket on it, you know? Anyway, Mr. Zimmerman, I looked at his shirt and he had a pack of Lucky Strikes. I could see that, you know, that target that on the front of them Lucky Strikes. I could see that through his shirt. It crushed me. It crushed me to think that my teacher actually smoked. I'm not talking about pot either. I'm talking about lucky strikes. I'm talking about lucky strikes. It, I can remember that standing right here in front of you and God and everybody. I remember the moment I looked at him when he took his coat off, and I could see through his shirt that pack of lucky strikes and what it did to me. It hurt me to think my teacher smoked. That was my generation. That's how we lived. He didn't have to commit some atrocity. He didn't have to molest a girl in the restroom. He just had to have a pocket like a strikes in his pocket, and that crushed me to think about that because I'm not that generation. I'm talking about my generation was crushed so easily. We were touched so easily by the things that were done with people that we held a high esteem. What would crush you today? What would you have to see out of a teacher to make you cry? All the boys had to tuck their shirt tails in. There was no such thing as untuck it. You got stopped more than once by a teacher. Tuck your shirt tail in. Run it down in there, you know. Girls, more than once, when they would come in class that have a curler in their hair, the teacher would say, go outside Take that curler out of your hair because you're going no place on this day that's more important than you being in my classroom. <sighs> Maybe it's come homecoming or something tonight, the ball team, you know, and they want to get their hair all done up, you know. She said, there ain't no place more important that you're going to be at today than my classroom. Take your hair. Take that curler out of your hair. Is that the best you can come up with? Curlers and shirt tails? That was the big deal to us. It was a big deal to us. That was crucifixion. That was, that was killing, you know. I never heard the word crack cocaine. I wouldn't know what you're talking about. If you'd have said that to me, I didn't know what you're talking about. I never heard the word ever used. You know, I didn't know nothing about heroin or I knew what a pot was, but it wasn't something you, you know. I didn't know fontanelle. I didn't know, I didn't know oxycodone or Demerol or Xanax or Valium or Adderall or Rattlin. They were not words I were acquainted with. I never heard those words in my life growing up. Those words were not around me. They were not around me. My, my friends didn't use those words. We didn't talk about it because we never heard of it. Didn't have no television. Didn't have no. We, we, my neighbor got a TV, and uh, so all of us went over to the, to their bedroom window, <laughs> and we put some cement blocks up on, and we climbed up on it, and looked through their bedroom 
out the door of the bedroom to the other side of the living room. There was a TV there, had a screen like a porthole. It's about that big around, you know. There wasn't no, even when they had television, you might say, oh, did you have a television? You, you had a television, but there was no programming. No program. What, what's good is a television? Sit there and watch the test pattern. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no programs, you know. You've got to have programs to have a television to make it worth anything, you know. And it went off like 6 o'clock. I tried to put some stuff on there, some goofy-looking men sitting behind a table trying to talk about the news or something, but that was about all there was. It wasn't fascinating for me, but, you know, I didn't. I, I'm just saying, my generation, what these kids deal with, the words they deal with, the images they deal with, the thoughts they deal with, it's not like my generation. So you old codgers, get over it. They're not like you. They've had to deal with things you never dreamed about. They have to deal with it. They have to deal with it because these gods are all around them. Moses said, it worries me because you've never had neighbors like this. And every neighbor you're going to have over there has a curse on them. And there's gods everywhere. And I wonder if you can deal with it or not. Because if you don't, God will wipe you off the earth. <sighs> Moses said, I wish I could go with you. Be seated, but I can't go. You're on your own when you get over there. God's around you. Listen to me. They're, they're, they're closed in on all sides. They're in your shopping malls. They're in your schools. In your television, magazine, movies. And they're going to be in Disney. And they're coming from every direction. They're going to bombard you. It's going to be like an avalanche. They are in or toward the opposite direction that you're going in. And yet they're all around you. They're contrary to everything you believe is true. Because they surround you. They encircle you. They enclose you. They envelop you. There is an indirect persuasion just for being around you. Because it seems now you have a choice. Either the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God that is around you. Don't underestimate these people or their gods. They have the power to influence you. That's why they advertise. It's power to sway and affect change in your life. The power to change your behavior and change your thinking. By being around you, they provide availability. See, even if I wanted to do something wrong, it wasn't available. It's not there. I ride my bicycle only so far, I can't even get to where all the good stuff's at or the sinful stuff's going on. You know, can I understand you can sin? You don't have to have the availability of that. But when you find it's available to you, it's all around you. It envelops you. It encircles you. It sucks you into that void because it strangles you because it's around you. You don't have to go to Egypt. Egypt's 5,000 miles. You don't have to go 5,000 miles. You don't have to go two blocks. It's next door to you. It's the people first, then the gods of the people. The people influence you to begin with. Then you fall in love with the gods of those people. The people first, then the gods of the people. You get acquainted. You establish a friendship. Then it's a relationship. Then you begin to associate. Next, you begin to regard them with affections. You become intimate with them. You become attached to them. At last, you embrace their God, and it all becomes normal, just an everyday experience. The next moment, you're backslid away from the one true God to all the gods that are around you. Just pick one out. They're everywhere. Do not be deceived by the gods around you. This is a new trial and test that you must resist at all costs. The gods or gods that are around you are appealing. They're not ugly. These gods have great attraction to the eye. 
they're close by and near where you live so you can see them, hear them, and end up worshiping them. So they entice you, they influence you, they distract you from worshiping the true God. These gods around you become familiar as the gods of your friends. At times they act and worship like you. They sound like you. They act like you. But you know better than that. As you've been in an apostolic church, you know the truth. Religion is as universal as man. Every religion involves some kind of God. Gods are created because they're local. People who live in the desert do not have an alligator as a God. Why is that? There are no alligators. Why would you want to worship something you can't see? Yeah, why would you want to worship something you can't see? Why would you want to worship an invisible God that no man has ever seen? Why would you want to worship a God that's you can't see? But we've got gods that you can see, and they're pretty. And you can wear a jersey with their name on the back. And we've got pictures of them you can hang on your wall. We've got concerts you can go to. We've got movies that you can watch. You've got a God you can't even see. Look at our God. He's handsome. She's pretty. He's talented. He's gorgeous. And they're all around you. It's not a God you've got to travel to Idaho. You don't have to buy a ticket on a plane to go see one of these gods. They live next door to you. And they're very attractive. And all you got is an invisible God. That's how they toy with you. That's how they look at our God. Look at him. Look how great he is. Look how handsome he is, you know. Look how beautiful she is. And yada, yada, yada. On and on and on they go. But the gods that are around you, go ahead and be seated. I'll finish this deal up here. So gods are created because they're local. As I said, a, a Bedouin tribe out in the desert stands up like, don't have an alligator for a god. Because there are no alligators out there, and you need something you can see if you're going to worship it. Sure. Now, if you go into the rainforest, where there's a canopy of, of, of trees over top of you, you won't make the sun your god, because when you look up, you see your leaves. But you might make an alligator, or you might make a monkey, or you might make a tree, or you might make a fish, or you might be a, a very beautiful bird, because they're everywhere. You see, it's the locality of it that makes it attractive. Little Baptist nod be good about right here. I understand what you're saying, Brother Osborne. It, it, is, it is the locale of it. It is where it's at that causes people to make a God out of it. They don't make a God out of something you can't see, you can't feel, you can't hear, you can't taste. They want you to have a God that's very attractive to your life. And it will always be local. That's why the devil puts the gods all around you that this generation has to deal with, that my generation did not. I'm not saying my generation was perfect or my generation never sinned. I'm just saying what they're dealing with was not what I had to deal with because it wasn't around me. For there be many that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But to us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, we in him, one Lord Jesus Christ, to whom are all things, and we by him. Simply because there are gods all around you. The Bible confesses there are gods many and there are lords many. Little g gods and little l lords. Not capitals, but little g gods. But the little g gods are everywhere. Well, let me get on the road here. There's a glass containing the brain of one of the revered saints and in Catholic history. His name was St. John Bosco. Doesn't sound, like a, doesn't sound like a saint to me, but be that as it may. His brain was repeatedly stolen in Italy. It was reported stolen by a thief posing as a pilgrim. Police set up roadblocks in northern Italy in an attempt to retrieve the brain of John Bosco, one of the country's most revered saints. The thief entered the church named after the 19th century saint in Turin last Friday and left with a glass case containing the relic of the saint who is known as Don Bosco. 
devotees often visited the church and pray before the relic key behind the altar. On Sunday, pilgrims gathered at Don Bosco's Bastille to pray for its return. I invite whosoever took it, give it back immediately without any conditions so we can close this painful page and continue to honor the memory of Don Bosco worthily in his birthplace. Don Bosco is venerated for having dedicated his life to help poor, deprived children. He founded the religious order. He died in 1888 and was canonized in 1934. Uh, it makes you think of the profound moral misery of someone who would steal a sign that has been left and can serve for the devotion of the faith of all. They lost their brain. <laughs> what are you going to do? John Bosco's brain. They had it in a glass case, put it up on the altar. If people came in and worshiped the brain in order to get to the God of the brain. Because everybody needs something you can see to go through to get to what you can't see. That's why churches have statues and carvings and everything everywhere, you know, because you got to go through something you can see to get to what you can't see. And they call us foolish for worshiping and dancing. And they are telling us you got to get the brain back. I, I, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to cast dispersions or anything, but that's real. That, they make that up. That's real. They had a man's brain. You know, the, the church in Indianapolis, I forget what kind of church it was, it doesn't matter, but it's, everything is a, is, has descended from the Catholic Church, except apostolic churches, in my opinion at least. They're another denomination. It's like that church is a dollar. You may be a hundred pennies, but you're just a denomination of that, you know. You can have four corners. That's just another denomination, you know. You can have ten dimes. That's another denomination of a dollar. So I don't care where you feel. If you're, if you're starting out with a dollar, I don't care how many denominations you make of that. It's still a dollar. Except apostolic. We're not another denomination. We are the reality of Acts 2.38 alive again. And I don't need another man's brain to worship. Thank you, Jesus. Let me cut to the chase here. Why do you suppose Charlie Woods... Is such a great golfer. He's only, what, 12, 13? It's, it's, it's Tiger Woods' son. I can see why he probably don't play badminton or soccer, you know. People love soccer. Some people do. I think they play it so they don't have to watch it. Anyway, I don't, I'm not a big... I'm not a big soccer fan. They play for three or four hours and scores one to nothing. Sweet Jesus, you got to sit there all that time and watch that, brother. I don't understand hockey. You know, but he's a, he's a golfer because, because his dad has marinated him in it. He has soaked him in it. He has talked about it. He has corrected him. He has given him ideas and he gets the best clubs that are custom made for him. He gets the best glove made out of the finest leather. He's got the shoes that have been custom made for him. He's got the cleats on the shoes that are the right depth so his feet can turn and his arm can swing. And he's been given all of the opportunities because he put golf as a God around him. And he has become a good golfer. Only makes sense. That's what his father put around him. Here's the promise. Then answered Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For whatsoever things he doth, doth also the Son likewise. The Father just does what the Son does. Now I'm going to tell you, Father, something. You better tighten the circle around your young people. You better tighten things up a little around there because the circle needs to be a little smaller and don't let everything in that wants in into their lives. Because whatever they see the Father does, that's what the Son does. The Son does nothing of himself. Charlie Woods didn't pick out golf. Golf picked out him through his Father. If you want your kids to stay in church and love God, tighten the circle up a little because they're being strangled to death by the gods that are around them. 
You can be seated. Lot put the gods of Sodom around his family. That's what he did. Mr. Lot, I put it all on you, sir. You, put the, you pitched your tent in the direction of Sodom, and you ended up putting the gods of Sodom all around your family. To the point that his wife couldn't even be saved with angels holding her hands. She looked back to the gods of Sodom. She was in love with the social standing of Sodom. She looked back and became a pillar of salt. Helplessly in love with Sodom's social life. Lot embraced the political life that was around him, and he sat in the gate. Because you will become like the gods that are put around you. In the end, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt. Lot's two daughters took a lesson they learned from the gods that had been around them and committed incest with their father and produced two sons. It was normal and acceptable behavior in Sodom, and so it was acceptable and normal behavior to them. Because you repeat what the gods that are around you tell you and influence your life. So what they were doing was not sin. What they were doing was not uh, some uh, horrible deal to commit incest with your father. It was the normal behavior for a sodomite. If you don't want your kids to act like sodomite, don't put sodomite gods around them. <laughs> Tighten the circle up. Tighten it up a little bit because it's going to envelop them, seduce them, drag them down. If you put the gods of Sodom around them, don't be shocked when they start acting like the gods that are around them. Moses was scared to death and worried about this because you're going to have gods around you, and you've never had that before. So Lot's got two boys now. How do you explain that in the marketplace? Are you the father or the grandfather? I'm kind of both. How's it working out for you, Lot? How's things? Because you become like the gods you put around you. Simple as that. Don't be chastising your daughters. Don't be ragging on your daughters. If you hadn't put Sodom around them, they would not act like Sodomites. If you had stayed with Abraham and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they wouldn't have turned out like that. And Lot went up to Zor and dwelt in the mountain, him and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zor, and he dwelled in a cave with his two daughters. Good job, Lot. Good job. Now you're living in a cave with your two daughters. Is that how you want all this to end? Living in a cave with your two babies, two daughters? It's the price you pay for the gods that you put around you. There's a positive side there. I'm coming down the stretch. I really am now. I'm not joking with you now. There's a positive side to this. If you can just get the God of heaven, somehow get him around them. Hallelujah. Because there's no place that God's not. He's everywhere. But you've got to tighten the circle up. Can you have a circle like this? You've got to tighten it up. And Orpha kissed her mother, but Ruth claimed to her. And she said, Behold, thy sister has gone back to her people. Because it starts out with people. He's gone back to her people and unto her gods. She turned around and went back. That's the power of the God you've had around you. But Ruth, evidently Naomi, taught her a home Bible study, probably searched for truth. Taught her a home Bible study about God, about her God. He's a God of love and he's a God of joy. He'll give you peace, Ruth, because I know you've been raised in Moab. 
We have all kinds of false gods. And temple prostitutes, you got, you got, you got, you just, they sacrifice their babies to a false god. He says, God doesn't want your babies. Ruth, he just wants your heart. That's all he wants out of your life is just your heart. I know you can't see him, but he's the God of heaven. He's the creator God. Creator God. And she taught Ruth about this God that she served. Even though she had failed some in her life, she so convinced Ruth that the Bible says that Naomi, I'm paraphrasing now, but it's, it's like this. Ruth got up from where she was. Like, where else can you get up from? Can't get up from where you ought to be. Can't get up where you should have been. Everybody gets up from where you are, you know. If you're sitting in Moab, you got to get up from where you are. If you're sitting in a prison cell and you're going to live for God, you got to get up from where you are. Doesn't matter where you're at, that's where you got to get up from. And not everybody, if you're a prodigal son and you're sitting on the back of the hall pit, you got to get up from right there. No, say I'll get up tomorrow, next week when I get some money, better clothes. Get up from where you are. She, when she got up, Ruth got up. Because Ruth ain't getting up if she don't get up. Some of your parents expect your children to get up and live for God, and you can't get up on Sunday morning and live for God. Don't expect them to get up if you don't get up. You're always waiting on somebody to get up and pace. Show me what to do. Show me how to live. Show me how to worship. Show me how to dance. Show me how to sing the choir. Show me how to give me my best. Because Michael despised David when she worshiped. Do you know why? She had never seen her daddy saw worship. You can be seated. I am trying to do better. And behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back into her people and to her God. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or return from following thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people, your people, See, you have got to win them to yourself before you win them to God. If they got no confidence in you, they see you slipshod living for God. You say you don't do this, they see you do it. They ain't going with you. Your people will be my people, and your God is going to be my God. Because somehow Naomi had put her God around Ruth, and she gave up all the false gods and went with the God of Ruth. But you got to win them to Ruth first. Because Ruth has to get up. Naomi has to get up, or Ruth's not getting up. And there's a Boaz waiting over here. Yeah, there's a Boaz waiting for you young people over here. But you've got to get up. I don't care if your parents don't get up. You get your raggedy self out of bed, bring yourself to church. You don't have to have a, you, I'm sorry you didn't have a good parent. If you don't have a good parent, I'm sorry as I can be. But you've got to make it on your own now because Moses can't go with you. You can't go with you. You've got to decide for yourself. And I know it's not easy because there are gods all around you. Unlike my generation. Now, we weren't, I, I don't mean to imply that my generation was so perfect. We never committed sin or said a bad word, nothing like that. It wasn't like that. I'm just saying, but the stuff you deal with, I had no conscience of that. I didn't know people ever, people never came to our school and, and, and killed a bunch of people. We didn't have no locks. We didn't have no things you had to go through, metal detectors and all that kind of stuff. I never dealt with that, you know. This wasn't a part and parcel of my life. So I didn't have those kinds of gods. I'm not saying they didn't exist. They just weren't around me. Just weren't around me. I just didn't know. Go ahead, stand with me. That'll make you think I'm really done. And I am. I am. So when it gets closed in on all sides of you, I'm going to tell you, Moses, he penned the remedy for it. Here we go. In the sixth chapter. Now, you've quoted this verse of Scripture. Some of you preachers have all your life. But you didn't know Moses said it to a new generation. In 11 days, he'd be dead. You know, the seven sayings from the cross, you have that book? People wrote books and volumes about the seven things Jesus said from the cross. It's, it's a very well-known book. It's, and it's, not a, it's a good book. I'm just saying the seven sayings from Christ. 
But Moses had a lot more sayings than seven, and he said them all 11 days before he died. So these are the last words of Moses before he climbed that mountain. God killed him and buried him. They mourned 30 days, then Joshua took over, led him over to the promised land. And Moses said, all I can leave you are my words. And these are the words of Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, hear all you generations, you young generation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. I know there are God's many. I know you're all around you are God's. But understand the Lord God is one. He is one. I want all the young people to say this with me. I want all you young people to say I want your outdoor voices. I would have said, all you young people, if you're not sitting up here, you're sitting someplace, I want to hear you say, the Lord our, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Loud. I want you to hear it loud. I want you to lift your voice. Loud. Come. Say it again. Now it's got to be louder, louder, louder. There you go. Say it again. Yeah, hallelujah. Say it again. Yes, sir. What again? Sing it. Say it. All right, all right, all right. I want all the ladies to say it now. All you ladies, say it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Ladies, outdoor voices. Now, I want a squeaky feminine voice. I want you to crank it out like you're yelling at your husband. Israel. Again. One more time. Yeah. All right, men, get ready. I want them masculine voices. Lift it up, lift it up on high. Come on, man. Hear, O Israel. Again. Yeah, one more time. Everybody now sing it. Everybody. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One more time. Lift your hands and love him now. Love the God of Israel. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Moses. I'm going to give you words. I'll give you words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is one Lord. He is one Lord. You got God's many, but there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Somebody needs to worship the one God. Let's worship the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. My God, my God, my God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I need some folks. Come on, let's get around the altar. And let's love the Lord. Let him know that there may be gods all around us. That we're going to serve the one true God. We're going to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will not be distracted. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Even though we have gods all around us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, go ahead and love the one God. One God. One God. One Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hear, O Israel. My God, I hear Moses lifting up his voice, saying, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. <laughs> 